Acts this evening, so you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 14. The only announcement that I'm aware of is that on uh, Saturday the 13th of, um, of April, Camperete is having a, uh, a garage sale, and uh, so you need to be aware uh, need to be aware of that. I can't think of uh, uh, anything else uh, that's going on other than uh, we do have a uh, deacons meeting this uh, this coming Saturday at nine o'clock. Right, right, Alan. Okay. I don't think there's anything else. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our uh, study in God's word this evening, let's have a few moments of uh, silent prayer, and then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to study your word. And as we have just been reminded through promises related to your word, it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's your word that illuminates our our thinking about the issues of life. And whatever issues we face, whatever challenges, whatever difficulties, we know that your word has the answers. And, Father, the only way that we can uh, understand those answers and get your word uh, into our thinking is by consistently uh, listening, studying, reading, your word, so that God the Holy Spirit has the tools to work with to revamp our thoughts, to reshape our lives. Father, we pray as we study this evening that we might be reminded of your purposes in in, uh, history and that we might be reminded of the power of the gospel in changing people and changing cultures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 14, and... um, Before we get started, though, I wanted to make a comment. I had a, Connie sent out a little email challenge this morning related to uh, uh, developing some critical thinking skills, just to have a little fun in relation to this uh, History Channel uh, program on the Bible to see who can watch it critically. See, if, you, if you're looking for errors, you're not going to just sit there with your mind open and just absorb things. If you're looking for things that aren't right, you're going to have all your, you know, critical antenna out, so you're going to be thinking about what it is that you're watching. And you should be that way all the time, and we should be that way about everything we listen to, every TV show we watch, every film we watch, every newspaper article we read, constantly have a a conscientious biblical grid up there to evaluate. Otherwise, things just sort of slip past the guard and get into our thinking. Erroneous ideas slip in and get into our thinking. Now, it's interesting, as I was thinking about this this morning and got out on the Internet and did some searches on some of the errors or problems with the film, I didn't find anybody listing biblical problems with these shows. What I did find was people coming up with things like, oh, you know, the guy who plays the devil is black and he looks like Obama. The criticism is, is irrelevant to biblical criticism. 
there's a positive attempt on the part of the producer of this show to try to present the Bible in a, in a positive light. And if you watch at the very beginning, it says that, that it is, it's a dramatization, which is fine. We understand in any kind of dramatization of any kind of, uh, of narrative work that you have to compress things and leave things out and you can't just put every detail in there. But on the other hand, why do you choose to exclude some detail to replace them with detail that isn't true? Uh, what are, what's the criteria for picking and choosing and selecting that, for example, uh, that we're, we're going to uh, ignore what the Scripture says clearly about there being some delay, whether it's a day or two or a week or two or a month or two or at least up to two years, between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi on Herod's doorstep, Matthew 2, 1, begins after the birth of Jesus. How much more clear can you be? So why do you have the Magi showing up with Herod? This was the, the other night. I just have watched about five or ten minutes of this whole thing. So I just picked, just happened to be watching at that moment. And they're showing the, the scenes of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem. And then they'll shift to the Magi arriving in Jerusalem, then back to Mary and Joseph trying to find a dry shelter because it's pouring rain in Bethlehem that night. And then it switches back to uh, the Magi, Balthazar, coming into Herod's presence. So it's showing by its presentation that these are happening at the same time. It's not what the Scripture says. Why can't you show the birth of Jesus, and then the arrival of the Magi. That would not have been difficult. You just don't splice things together that way. So you have things of that nature that they, they, they want to treat some facts as serious and accurate and other facts in the text as, as irrelevant. What criterion are they using to make those kinds of selections, what I want to know? Then you always get those wonderful little stories that come across from the press about the weird things that happen on the set. Like the night that they're filming <clears throat> Jesus and Nicodemus talking. And, and all day it's been still. And that evening it's been a very still, quiet evening, and they have Jesus, or Nicodemus coming to uh, talk to Jesus. And as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again and that the Holy Spirit comes like a wind, all of a sudden there's this blast of wind like a 747 taking off, and then it goes away. But the really spooky thing that gets everybody's attention is the fact that they did have a snake wrangler on the set because they're filming apparently somewhere in North Africa, and, uh, and there were a number of problems with, with snakes, cobras, and other vipers showing up, and they would find one or two every day. But the day they're going to film the crucifixion, and they have their Golgotha Mountain, which is not accurate archaeologically either. Golgotha was probably the hillside, but Jesus isn't, the cross isn't put on top of it. it, it Golgotha, it was a, uh, was a rock quarry. And it was outside of one of the gates in Jerusalem, one of the, the uh, uh, western gate of the city. 
And at the base of this hill that they were where they were quarrying rock is where they because that's where the major road ran coming out of the gate, and they would crucify the criminals right there by the side of the road, not up on a hillside. Um, so that's come down through popular myth. But they, the day they were going to film that, they had the cross up on top of this hill, and so the snake wrangler got there early. And he goes up on the hill, and he came down with a sack of 24 cobras and vipers. Now, this, this, this feeds the mystics. And other things, I'm sure, went on that, that we'll hear about. But anyway, I thought it would be fun. At first I said, watch all of it, but they've already shown three, and some people can't don't have the uh, tools to go back and watch the first three. So we've got two coming up. The, lat, the one this coming Sunday night will probably cover most of Jesus' ministry. I'm not sure where the one ended the other night. But in this, we're going to be seeing their portrayal of the book of Acts. And since we're only we're halfway through the book of Acts now, but that ought to give you some framework for being able to watch what's being portrayed on the screen as they portray the book of Acts and give you, you know, some critical perception. So that'll be something fun to do. It's a fun way to test yourself to see how much you know, not necessarily to just pick apart. Uh, we're not going to be mailing in our, all of our criticisms to the producers or anything like that, but it's a good self-test to see what you've learned and what you can do. And if you have kids, uh, it's even a greater thing to do with the kids and to get them thinking about what does the Bible say and what do we hear in terms of these kinds of popular presentations of, uh, uh, of the Bible? In my house, it's pretty well known that we don't watch anything, any dramatizations of the Bible because the pastor tends to go ballistic within 30 seconds. It's, it's nothing is ever portrayed right, and I don't have the patience to put up with it, but most of you probably do because... You're not as embedded in the text as, as I am, so it'll give you uh, something interesting to do. All right, we are in Acts 14 where we see the continued expansion of the church in the uh, first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul as the, the church now is being expanded from a purely Jewish framework to a Gentile framework. Now, this is a transition that actually took took place over the next um, uh, 40 years as, as the beginning, the lion's share of this transition, but it still continues into um, the first part of the second century. It's not really until you get to approximately 135 with the second Jewish revolt against Rome, known as the Bar Kokhba revolt, that you start to see a genuine, hard, and fast separation between Jews and uh, and Gentiles between Judaism and Christianity up until the first Jewish revolt, which was uh, 66 to 70, uh, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, uh, Christians still went to synagogue. The, those Jews who had accepted Jesus as Messiah were just considered to be another sect of Judaism. And they continued to go to synagogue and they continued to uh, worship along with those who were not believers yet. It was a great evangelistic opportunity. And there wasn't this hard distinction that develops afterwards. Now, the first time that you really see a major 
uh, explosive division between Jews and Judaistic Jews and Christian Jews uh, is takes place at the time of the Jewish revolt because as the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem recognized the promise, I mean, the prophecy of Jesus that Jerusalem, when they saw Jerusalem being surrounded, that they were to flee to the mountains. And so when uh, the siege was paused for a few months because the Romans had to go back and regroup after the after the death of Nero, how come I don't have any power up here? That's why. Okay. Um, after the death of Nero, they had to regroup for a little while, and so the, Jew, the, the Christians that were in Jerusalem left, and, they, and the ones who were in Judea, they left. Many of them went up to Syria. They went to uh, Antioch in and, and Syria and other places, but they got out of Israel. This, this was viewed as an act of treason uh, by many of the, many of the Jews, and uh, that continued to be a problem through the all the way up till 135, the Second Jewish Revolt. It's interesting that according to the sources that we have, not a single Jewish Christian lost their life in the either the First or the Second Jewish Revolt because of Jesus' prophecy uh, that was part of the Olivet Discourse. They fled uh, Judea. And Jerusalem because of that, and so as a result, they survived. And uh, between the two revolts, well over a million Jews lost their lives as uh, as Rome crushed their rebellion. So this is the beginning of this uh, outreach to the Gentiles. Paul is following the standard procedure of taking the gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. We saw. The results of that in the previous uh, chapter as he was in Pisidia of Antioch, and he has left there and uh, gone to Iconium, uh, gone to Iconium. We'll have a map of Iconium in just a minute. Acts 14.1 says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, Believed. That begins with this phrase. Now it happened, which in the Greek is a use of a of a one of the two or three main uh, Greek what we'd call an existential verb, a verb meaning to be or to come into existence or to exist. Sometimes it's translated is, but it usually has the idea of coming into existence. For example, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we have the opening line in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the verb that is used there is your primary to-be verb, your primary verb of existence in, um, in Greek, and it means that something exists, something is. So in the imperfect tense, it emphasizes the continual existence of the Word with God in eternity past. And in the first three verses of the Gospel of John, the focus is on this existence of the Lagos. But then the next verse begins, now there was a man. Now it used, in English it uses the same verb, was, but in, in, in John, it, in the Greek, it shifts to genomai. 
because there came into existence a man named John. See, the Lagos was eternally there, so you use one verb, but then John was, uses a different verb. In the English, you miss it, but in the Greek, it brings out that distinction. So genomai is a verb that emphasizes something that uh, comes into existence. It wasn't there, and then it happens, and it often is used as a, uh, it reveals a semitism, uh, that is a, a Hebrew turn of phrase that uh, that has influenced the writer. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And so this is just the flow of the narrative in Acts 14.1, indicating um, sequential action that the events at Iconium occur after the events at Antioch. So it happened. So it came into existence, as it were, in Iconium that they went together. Now, this uh, third-person plural uh, word here, they, would refer to Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul went together to the synagogue of the Jews. So again, now that he has left one location, he's going to repeat the same procedure in the second location and go to, uh, go to the synagogue and take the gospel first to the Jews. And he spoke so that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believe. Now, this is fascinating because there's an immediate response, and it's an enormous response. But it's going to also stir up a little trouble, which we'll see in just a minute. Now, Iconium is located here on the map in the south-central part of what is now modern Turkey. It is in the province of Galatia. This southern area here is referred to as Galatia, so this is one of the uh, groups of people that the Apostle Paul addressed in his very first epistle, which is the epistle to the Galatians. And he's going to go from uh, uh, <clears throat> Pisidian Antioch to Iconium, and then as we see later in the chapter to a couple of smaller uh, towns, Lystra and Derby. And it is to these believers who come to the gospel, they believe and they are saved, but then they become confused because of later uh, Jews that come in who pervert uh, the gospel and try to change up the gospel that the Apostle Paul uh, proclaimed when he first came. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, Iconium is a city that's about 95 miles uh, north of the Mediterranean coast. It, today it is a rather large town and it is known as Konya. Now, Iconian, if you pronounce the final consonant with an N instead of an M, which is typical as words go from one language to another, that, that M to N is a typical change. Iconium and Konya. You can hear the modern Turkish name Konya in the middle syllable of Iconium. So the ancient name continues to be represented in the uh, in the modern name, it's the capital of the province, also going by the name of Konya. It was a major agricultural center in the ancient world. It was known for its wheat production as well as uh, fruit pr fruit production, apricots, plums, other fruit was grown there, and so it was a major trade route because of the agricultural production here. The east west road ran through. Uh, through Iconium, and so there was a lot of a, a certain amount of prosperity there. 
And it had attracted a, uh, a number of Jews there in the diaspora during the period after the uh, uh, period of the Greek Empire when it split up. There was a, a large uh, Jewish community that, that went into many of these different uh, towns in south-central <coughs> south central, uh, uh, Turkey. It is a um, it, the town originated from various uh, Greek immigrants from northern Greece, who the who moved into this area, according to Xenophon, a Greek historian. Uh, those that came from the north of Greece up in this area were Phrygians who moved down this way and uh, established uh, sort of a beachhead down here, along with Celts early Celts. There were two branches of the Gauls or Celts. One group went west and settled in Gaul, which is modern France. Others continued further west and went to uh, England, settled in England, settled in uh, Wales and Scotland, as well as over in Ireland. Another group went uh, east and settled in this area. That is, the, the, the root of the term Galatia is from the word Gaul, uh, and this refers to, this is another form of the word uh, that has come down to us as Celts. Of course, Americans follow the English and always mispronounce foreign words, and so for those of you who've been in Boston and, and follow the basketball team up there, you pronounce it with a sibilant C. There was no sibilant C sound in ancient Greek. There's a K sound, ka, but no Celtic sound. It was often, it was always Celtic. So that's the correct pronunciation uh, if you care to be correct. So this is, this is the uh, makeup of the name, uh, of the background of the, of the uh, origin of the city, as it were. The name Iconium has a Phrygian uh, background, uh, it has an interesting, um, interesting legendary, uh, legendary background. There was a story they had in their mythology of a great flood. Go figure. Where, wonder where they came up with that idea. That there was a great flood that destroyed mankind, and life was restored when Prometheus and Athena, of uh, Greek mythology uh, background, breathed life into human beings made from mud left over from the uh, from the flood waters, so you see how pagan myth always has sort of a a a core memory, a residual memory of actual truth. They have the story of a universal flood and the idea of man being created from the uh, earth of the ground from the chemicals of the of the soil, but they 've packaged it together a little bit. Now, they understand that, that, that as this new life, new human images come into existence, as they refer to them, these were called icons. This is the Greek word for an image is the word icon. And so that, that's the root of iconium is the word icon. Now, in modern uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, they have images uh, two-dimensional images that uh, of events in the Bible of Jesus and Mary and and uh, other biblical figures, and they pray to those icons. They were originally painted as sort of uh, visual aids, but eventually they began to be worshipped uh, almost as an idol, and that led to an uh, <clears throat> icon controversy in the early church. 
and those who were antagonistic to the use of icons in church worship were called iconoclasts. And so it's referred to as the iconoclastic controversy because they were against the use of these uh, these images. An iconoclast today is someone who is tearing down um, sacred cows or attacking sacred cows, uh, traditionally held beliefs that uh, really have no basis in fact. So uh, that was the origin of the uh, iconoclast um, episode. An icon is the word from which we get um, the name Iconium. Today we use the word icon to refer to a lot of different little images like the images that you see related to different programs on a computer screen and things of that nature. So it picks up a, a totally unrelated, non-religious uh, significance today. Then during the Greek period, after the death of Alexander the Great, uh, Iconium was part of the uh, territory controlled by the Seleucid kings and controlled by Syria, and this turned Iconium into a Greek city, a Hellenistic city, where the language was no longer the traditional language of the uh, Phrygians, but became the language of the Greeks, and that became the normative language uh, up through the period of the New Testament. And so it's very much a, uh, a Greek town. In 36 B.C., Mark Antony uh, <clears throat> gave the city to uh, Antimus, one of the uh, uh, other, one of the eastern rulers. And then, in uh, when he died in 25 B.C., Iconium joined the neighboring cities of Lystra and Derby and Spasidian Antioch as part of the province, the Roman province of Galatian, became part of the Galatian Empire. So this is the the town to which the Apostle Paul comes. So he comes to Iconium. And he goes to the synagogue, and there he proclaims the gospel. Later on, down when we get to about verse, uh, I'm not sure which verse it is now, but down a little further, he's going to talk about the fact that they proclaimed the gospel. And that's what this describes, is simply evangelizo, that is the proclamation of the, uh, of the good news. Oh, that's in chapter 14. In verse 7, that's what I thought. When they were preaching the gospel, that's evangelizo, proclaiming uh, the good news. So they proclaimed the good news, and the positive response is that the Greeks, the Jews and the Greeks, believed. Now, the word here for belief is the word I have up there in the box, pistevo, as it's pronounced in modern Greek, probably pretty close to the original Greek, uh, pistevo, and it simply means to believe something. To believe something means that you agree in your mind or you assent to the fact that something is true. Now, there are those who think that that's an awfully weak definition of faith, that faith isn't just intellectual assent. But that is a perfectly sound definition. Let me explain it a little bit to you. First of all, if it's not intellectual then with what organ of your body are you believing it? If it's not intellectual, it's they sometimes say it's a heart faith. Well, there's no intellectual activity taking place in your heart. A heart is a physical organ that pumps the blood. So the seat of belief is in your mind. The mind is the source of, of thought. 
And so faith is an intellectual activity. To believe something, you have to first understand it. Now, that doesn't mean that you exhaustively comprehend it. For example, when the apostle Peter was out on the fishing boat and Jesus walked out at night on the water, the apostle Peter did not understand the physical properties that allowed Jesus to walk on the water. He didn't have an understanding of the physics of the situation, but he had enough understanding to know that Jesus as God and as the creator could control these things, and so he could trust Jesus to uh, enable him to walk upon the water. And so he did it. So faith doesn't mean you have an exhaustive understanding of something, but you have to understand something. It's not vacuous. You don't just go, oh, well, the pastor said it, so I believe it. Now, some people think that, but you can't believe something you don't understand. Now, I'm not, remember, I'm not saying that you, I don't mean understand it completely or exhaustively, but you have to at least be able to comprehend and, and restate something in your own words in a limited sense. Otherwise, you can't believe it. Believe is something that says, I understand what X is, and I think that's true. I believe that to be true. That's what faith is. It is an intellectual activity. It's not an emotional activity. And it is a result of a volitional act because you have to come to understand that something is true. That means you're moving from a position of non-understanding or non-comprehension to a position where you say, I understand what that is saying, what that statement is expressing, and I have been convinced from the evidence presented to me in explaining it that it is true. Now, I just used another word, <clears throat> convinced that something is true. Another way we might express that is to say that, that we have become persuaded by evidence or by explanation, which is another form of evidence, or from logic that something is true. So you have one form of activity called persuasion, and then there is a response to the information given you to choose to be persuaded and to believe or to resist the evidence and to not believe. Now, there's a reason I'm expressing it this way, and that is because within the uh, so-called free grace theology, something came up about 10 or 12 years ago that has also eroded the orthodoxy of some free grace theologians. This was part of the division. We've talked about this before that occurred due to the influence of Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, John Niemöller, and a couple of others. Uh, in reference to understanding the gospel. And at that point, I pointed out that one of the problems in the free grace movement is they began to ask the question about what's the least amount of information I need in order to be saved. And they limited that to Jesus' statement in John 5 that simply believe in him for eternal life. Well, another aspect that came up was this aspect of persuasion. Persuasion. And so they go to these two words that we're going to see in these two verses. So I'll explain this along the way, 
But I just want you to be aware of this as part of my job as a pastor is to protect the sheep from the ravenous wolves. And the way to do that is to help you understand some of the issues that are floating around out there. Pistuo is a word that means to believe. What's the opposite of believing? Unbelieving, disbelieving. So in Greek, that would be apistevo. It's putting the negative prefix. We would put un or dis as a negative prefix, but in Greek, it's the uh, olive or alpha at the beginning. Now, we get an opposite statement here in verse 2 as translated wrongly in the New King James Version. They understand a contrast is going on, so the translators of the King James put it as belief versus disbelief or unbelief, but that's not the, the, the Greek word here translated the unbelieving Jews is not apistevo. It's this word, a Petheo. Now there's a there's an etymological connection between pistevo and patho, but that doesn't mean anything. Just because there's an etymological connection between words doesn't mean they're they are they're that tied together in terms of usage. If you look at the standard and one of the best Greek lexicons, <clears throat> the Bauer Danker Art and Gingrich uh, Third Edition. Apatheo has two meanings listed in the text, to, dis, be, to be disobedient or to disobey. It doesn't mean unbelief. Now, it's related to unbelief because when you don't believe the gospel, what's the result? But remember, it's cause and result, cause and effect. When you disbelieve the gospel, you are disobedient to God, but Disbelief is not a synonym for belief. I mean, disbelief is not a synonym for disobedience. They're two different things. They're related, but they're two different things. Now, apitheo is consistently translated as disobedient in a lot of passages. In Luke one seventeen, we read, He will also, that is a reference to John the Baptist, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, that's our word, apatho. That's dis, it's translated as disobedient. Now, the New King James translates it uh, unbelief or disbelief in John 3.36, which is wrong. The New American Standard Bible translates it correctly in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The word, according to the Greek dictionaries and usage, is apatho, means di uh, disobedience. Now, the verse that our errant brethren in the free grace movement have uh, camped out on is in Acts twenty-eight twenty-four. The New King James translation reads, and some were persuaded. Once again, Paul's proclaiming the gospel. Some are persuaded, and that's the word patho. They're persuaded uh, by the things that were spoken, and some disbelieved. Now, the basic fundamental error of logic from the free grace guys is that they've said, ah, uh, 
patho, persuade, is the opposite of disbelief. And they go to this verse as if they're, are, are, as if they're opposites, expressing the, uh, expressing the opposites here from persuaded and belief. And so what they're, what they're, where they go with that in their theology is to say that belief is simply being persuaded. It's not a decision. Pay attention to what I just said. So they get this, this it's not decisional. Now, what they're really arguing against is the idea that is expressed in some Baptist, I think, some other evangelical quarters, that if you can't pinpoint when you made a decision for Jesus, then how, you can't be sure you're saved. And so they refer to that ultimately as decisional evangelism. And, and I, they're right at, as far as it goes at that point. You don't have to know when you made a decision to trust in Jesus. There are a lot of people who grew up in Christian homes, grew up going to church, and as far as they can remember, they've just always believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They can't tell you exactly when it was that they first believed in Jesus, but they they know that they have, as far as their memory goes, they've always believed in Jesus. They and so they're. It's not that they're not saved; they just don't remember when uh, when that first occurred. So that's one logic error is by uh, using these as being opposite uh, equivalents in terms of uh, being opposites. Now, A.T. Robertson, who's an extremely well-known Greek scholar, Baptist from the early part of the 20th century, excellent Greek scholar, has somewhat of a little confusing statement here in his commentary called Word Pictures of the New Testament. He says, strictly apetheo, that's the word for uh, disobedient, does mean to disobey. And apistuo, or apistevo, to disbelieve. See, as far as he goes at that point, he's absolutely correct. Apetho means disobedient. Apistuo means disbelieve. These are different words, different things. But then he says, but that distinction is not observed in John 3.36, nor in Acts 19.9 or Acts 28.24. That's my comment in the brackets. But that's only in the, in the English translations. And he wrote the early part of the 20th century when the, basically there were a couple of other English translations, but primarily everything was going off of the, of the King James Version. That distinction isn't observed in the English translations, but it is observed I would say, in the original Greek text, that there's a distinction between those terms. He then goes on to say that the word apetheo means to be apetheis, which is to be unwilling to be persuaded or to withhold belief and then also to withhold obedience. He's, he's waffling here. This is where critical reading skills come to play. He, he starts off by saying, strictly speaking, apetheo means disobedient, and apistevo means disbelief. But then he wants to waffle a little bit and, uh, and try to act like they're, they're, I really didn't mean that. And the last thing he says, the two meanings run into one another. Well, they do because one leads to the next, but they're not the same. They're not interchangeable. They're not synonyms. There's a process that goes on. First of all, last paragraph there, first, in any course of, of, of movement of the will and decision to believe in something, first you're persuaded by the facts, 
And then when you let yourself, that's a passive activity, somebody else is persuading you. When you're persuaded by the facts or the information, then you choose to believe or not. Persuasion doesn't mean, if you are trying to persuade me of something, no matter how much your, no matter how well you marshal your facts or your logic or present the truth, you can you can resist my logic and resist my facts because you really don't want to believe where my argument is taking you, and you're you're not teachable, and so you don't want to follow that chain, and so you've already made up your mind, and no matter what the facts are, you're not going to respond. You don't want to be persuaded. But if you have an open mind and you're humble and objective, then as you learn the facts, you're willing to be persuaded. So you go through that process of persuasion, which culminates then in, yes, I believe what you're saying. But the conclusion of the process of persuasion is belief. Being persuaded is not the same as believing. Persuasion emphasizes someone someone convincing another person of the truth. So belief and persuasion are not the same. Belief results from being willing to be persuaded. That's where volition enters in. But our free grace brethren want to take volition completely out. Not all of them, but some of them want to take volition completely out of this equation and say that you're just, it's passive. You're being persuaded and all of a sudden, whew, you've been persuaded. And there is a very uncomfortable similarity between how they are explaining this and how uh, our hyper-Calvinist or high-Calvinist friends are explaining irresistible grace. Because you don't make a decision. It's just something that happens to you as a result of an external process and your will is not involved at all. But the issue is that if uh, the lexicons are correct, if A.T. Robertson is correct, and if most of the ways in which English translations translate apetheos correct, it means to be disobedient. Disobedience is an act of the will. It is a choice to re- reject something. This is why you have belief in the gospel being presented as a command in a number of places, like Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you ignore or reject the command, that's disobedience. God commands us to obey the gospel, which means to believe that Jesus died on the cross. If we uh, reject the gospel, then we are being disobedient to God. That is an act of the will. So if disobedience is an act of the will, and it is a negative act of negative volition, then belief is a positive act of the will. So I just wanted to take this opportunity because of the use of the terms in that verse to emphasize that the unbelieving Jews means that the disobedient Jews, we'll run into this several more times in Acts, refers to unbelievers as those who are disobedient because that's the end result of unbelief. It is disobedience to the gospel. So these disobedient Jews then stir up the Gentiles, and they don't poison their minds. The Greek word means they embitter them. 
they embitter them uh, against uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. They embitter their, and the word for minds is suke or soul, and it views the thinking part of the soul here, but it affects the entire immaterial part of the life. Now, this is one of those places where soul simply stands for the immaterial part of the person's being, probably uh, involves all of the makeup of the soul, but specifically it does involve the thinking of the soul. So uh, poisoning or embittering their minds, because bitterness is uh, originates with the sin nature, but it is a mental attitude. So they have uh, correctly caught the idiom of the Greek here that their thought process towards their uh, brethren, that is, those who responded positively to the gospel, has developed into bitterness, and that results in division in the synagogue. Now, that means you have a huge response of Jews and Gentiles to the gospel, and so they leave the synagogue and they met separately. And that's really sort of a paradigm or picture of what happens over the next hundred years is that uh, the, the believers, the Christians, leave the synagogue. It's Initially, the church is comprised of, of uh, uh, a lot of Jews, but even more Gentiles. But then as the time goes by, it becomes more and more predominantly uh, Gentile. Verse 3, we read, Therefore, because of this huge number of, uh, this huge response, huge number of believers, they, that is, Paul and Barnabas, stayed there a long time. Now, that's really not what it says in the Greek. The Greek uses the word hikanos, which means sufficient. They stayed there a sufficient amount of time. They stayed there long enough to teach basic doctrine to those who were were now become Christians. So they stayed there long enough. They stayed there long enough to accomplish a basic task to make sure they understand who Jesus was as the God-man, the eternal uh, God-man, eternal deity joined with humanity who entered into human history in order to go to the cross to die as our substitute for the sins to teach them uh, basics of doctrine. And they spoke boldly or confidently in the Lord. The word there translated boldly is the uh, word... Parasiazomai, uh, which means to speak with boldness or confidence or assurance. And they spoke confidently in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. This is the basic verb, martyreo. Remember, it goes all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, Jesus said, Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will be my witnesses. That's the word. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. So here they're being they're fulfilling that witness command from Acts 1.8. The Lord is bearing witness to the word of his grace. Now, the word, uh, the Greek word translated word is logos. Logos is often the written word, but it can refer to the me- also be translated message. If you look in the Bauer, Ar- Danker, Arn, Gingrich lexicon, look at the, uh, about, you have about two or three co- long columns of different nuances to the word logos. It's the word from which we get our word logic, and it, it's also the word from which we get our word logo. You look at a little symbol of a of a business, that's their logo. 
Uh, it has to do with word, a word, a message, a statement, the study of something, the science of something. It's at the uh, end of words like biology, that L-O-G-Y ending, zoology. These are words that refer to the study or science or knowledge of something. So logos has a wide range of meanings. One of its meanings is simply message. So every time we see the message of God, we tend to look at it and say, the word of God, the Bible. But it's really the message of God. In context, what are they talking about? The message that the apostles are bringing. It is the message of God's grace, which is that they can have a free salvation because Jesus Christ provided salvation for them. So it is a better translation contextually to say that the Lord was bearing witness to the message of his grace uh, by granting. So how is he, how is God bearing witness? It's an external witness, a confirmatory witness by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, the word there translated to be done is the same word I talked about earlier in the first verse. That's genomai, something that came to pass or came into existence, something that was not part of their experience but now entered into their experience. And it's talking about they are now performing uh, miracles to be done by their hands. That is the hands of Barnabas and Paul, uh, primarily Paul. Now, next week, I'll probably get into the doctrine of apostleship because in this passage, we have a couple of references. Uh, verse 4 comes up the, uh, with the first reference. The multitude of the city was divided, part-sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. So the whole town's divided over the gospel. Part-sided with the Jews, part-sided with the apostles. So the term apostles is plural and refers to both Barnabas and to Paul. But Barnabas isn't an apostle, capital A, like uh, I mean, Barnabas isn't an apostle, capital A, like Paul is. And we have to understand, basically, the bottom line is that there are different types of people called apostles in the New Testament. The Greek verb apostello means to commission or send somebody out on a mission. And it depends on who's doing the commissioning or sending and who is being sent and what they're being sent for. So you have one group in the New Testament that are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and sent out on a mission to take the gospel to the whole world. Those are the apostles, capital A. Then you have another group that are commissioned by individual local churches who are sent out on, on a mission, and those are apostles with a lowercase a. Barnabas was not a witness of the resurrection as far as Revelation tells us. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that. Uh, Barnabas is, a, um, uh, is not one of the original 11. He's not commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other passages in Scripture that tell us that the requirement for being an apostle is that you a witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ and you've been commissioned directly by him. And there's no indication that that's true for Barnabas. But he and Paul were both commissioned by the church at Antioch and sent out, and Barnabas is a, an assistant to the apostle Paul. And so as a team, they are working together because the apostle Paul is the one who is leading the team. They are both enabled 
to perform miracles, signs and wonders. But I want to take a little time to just look at this whole issue of signs and wonders in the New Testament. This is something that's become a confusing thing down through the ages because a lot of folks don't understand the nature and function of the signs and wonders and miracles in the New Testament. And we get a perfect example of their primary purpose here in this in this verse. Miracles were performed in order to bear witness to the message. It's confirmatory. It's not authenticating. And the, the difference I'm saying there is that it confirms the credentials of the apostles and the credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ but it isn't in and of itself convincing. If miracles were convincing, then everybody in Iconium would have responded positively to the gospel. Jesus would not have been crucified. Jesus performed many different signs, the uh, Apostle John tells us in his gospel, and he's crucified. So the performance of miracles is not designed to convince people of the truth. This was a basic error that uh, uh, led to a lot of confusion in the 70s, 80s, and 90s under the uh, term of power evangelism, which was promoted by a, a pastor out of Southern California called named by the name of John Wimber. It also was known as the third wave of the Holy Spirit, power evangelism. Uh, it became known as uh, the Vineyard Movement. And this was a split-off group from the Calvary Chapel churches that got into a certain amount of heresy. John Wimber also taught with uh, C. Peter Wagner at Fuller Seminary and was part of this whole group of mystical, semi-charismatic stuff that, that went on that just led Fuller Seminary further and further away from, from the Word of God and has led to a lot of confusion and a lot of division in a lot of different churches. Wimber's basic thesis was we would be a lot more effective in evangelism today if we did it like the, the apostles did it, which means we have to have miracles, and if we have miracles with our evangelism, we'll have great success in, in our witnessing. But the, the point of the New Testament is the miracles didn't lead to great success. There was great success, but not because of the miracles. Uh, the miracles were there to confirm the credentials of Jesus and the apostles, but there were many, many uh, Jews as well as Gentiles who were unconvinced by the miracles because they were negative in terms of their of their will. So let's just look at this whole issue of signs and wonders. The term signs is used 77 times in the New Testament. What, what we're doing here is just looking at the distribution of the topic. 77 times in the New Testament, 61 times in the Gospels. But remember, three of the Gospels are very similar to one another. That's why they're called synoptic Gospels. They're like synonyms. They're very similar, so they tell pretty much the same stories. And then the Gospel of John uses the term in a little bit of a distinct manner because he's going to present the signs that were done by Jesus to authenticate his Messiahship. So it's used 61 times in the Gospels and Acts. 13 of those 61 are in the book of Acts. Only seven times in Romans to, uh, <clears throat> I mean, excuse me, I put seven times in Romans. I was looking at it. It should be seven times in Revelation. That's a, a typo there. Seven times in Revelation, which leaves only 16 uses between Romans and Jude. 
So it's not a major topic in terms of New Testament epistles. And in many of those uses, it's pointing out the false miracles of the Antichrist and uh, uh, problems in the end times. So it's not talking about uh, the miracles that, that church-age believers should experience. One of the greatest signs in the New Testament is a sign of resurrection. In Matthew 12, 28 and 12, 39, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and says, we want to have a sign from you. And Jesus' response in 12, 39 is, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. See, Jesus never read Dale Carnegie's book of how to win friends and influence people. He said, uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, the signs and wonders movement just reverses that and said, we need to have signs. Jesus is saying the desire for signs is wrong. Okay? Now, he gives signs, but seeking a sign is, is not putting your faith and trust in the statements of the Scripture. As we go through Acts, the word's only used one more time in Acts, that is the word signs, and that's in the next chapter in 1512 when Paul and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem. They give a report as to what's been going on. They said, well, there were signs and wonders performed back in in, uh, Asia Minor, back in Galatia. So it's referencing back to these events. Uh, So the term signs after Acts 15 Signs and wonders don't appear again in the book of Acts. So this is supposed to be normative for all of the church age, then we've got a real problem because it doesn't happen again in the early church after Paul's first missionary journey. So why why are we to think this is supposed to be normative for the church age? The second word that's used here uh, is wonders, teros in the Greek, and it occurs only 16 times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospels, usually referring to some the false wonders in the end times, nine times it appears in Acts, four times in the Epistles. Again, this is not a major doctrine. When you examine the usage, it's really not talking about the expectation of the miraculous in the church age. Uh, usually it's referring back to the Gospels, as in uh, Romans fifteen nineteen, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum I fully preach the Gospel of Christ. It's Paul using the term to refer to the miracles that occurred at the beginning of his ministry. Second Corinthians twelve twelve uses it in terms of referring to the signs of an apostle. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you, with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul's talking to the Corinthians about his second missionary journey. So even though Acts doesn't record miracles or use the term signs and wonders, there were some miracles that occurred when Paul went to Corinth during the second missionary journey. Um, But they're signs of an apostle. They weren't performed by the everyday believer. They were authenticating signs to the apostles who were the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. We also have passages where it's talks, you, these words are used in the negative, that the coming of the lawless one or the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders. So this is the negative, counterfeit signs and wonders. Fourth point, signs and wonders were miraculous events used to establish the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah and of the apostles as his messengers. 
For example, the prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 7, Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, 4, talk about the fact that when the Messiah came, the lame would, would walk, the, the blind would be given sight, the deaf would hear. These would indicate the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah 35, 6, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, that is, in the desert. So there was the prediction that there would be miracles that would authenticate the claims of the Messiah. Jesus' miracles, therefore, point number five, Jesus' miracles were not performed at random or indiscriminately. He didn't always heal those who needed healing or perform on demand. Jesus didn't walk through the hospitals of the first century in Jerusalem and heal everybody. He only healed those in certain times in certain places related to what he was teaching and specifically to establish his credentials. Jesus doesn't heal just to heal. Otherwise, he would have healed everybody. Uh, and during the apostolic era, under point number six, uh, healing followed the same pattern. We have several examples in, in the book of Acts, Acts 5.12. There were many signs and wonders that took place in the early church around the, the uh, temple, the healing of the uh, cripple by Peter and uh, John in Acts chapter 3. Uh, were just one of the examples. Uh, they also cast out demons, Acts 8, 7, and there were examples of, uh, of uh, healing of Aeneas as also the raising of Tabitha from the dead. Now that brings us to the question that usually somebody always asks, well, what about Mark 16? Well, first of all, there's a textual problem. Mark 16 uh, has a long ending that you have in New King James Version. A lot of versions put it in there, but it's not well documented in terms of, uh, uh, of the text. There's a shorter ending. Nobody's really absolutely sure how the ending is, but assuming this is true, here's the verse they go to, Mark 16, 17. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, it's, they, you know, they will drink poison, etc., all of those things happened in, among the apostles. They didn't last beyond the apostolic age. But most of those things are recorded in the book of Acts as having happened as part of the authentication of the apostolic message. That's all Jesus is saying is Mark 16, 17. He's not saying that every believer is going to uh, exhibit these things. He's just saying this is something that will occur uh, with the gospel in the future, meaning under the apostolic uh, ministry. Eighth point, the word signs is used frequently in the Olivet Discourse, which is talking about the signs of the end times. The apostles say, what, I mean, the disciples ask, what are the signs of your coming? See, it's not talking about the miraculous. It's talking about the indications of the second coming. So the question regarding the signs of the coming, it refers to the counterfeit miracles of the Antichrist, as well as to the prophetic fulfillment of, of various signs indicating the proximity of Jesus' coming. Finally, under point number nine, the gospel uh, with the most significant use of the word is the gospel of John. In John 20, 30, and 31, we read, and this is right after Jesus has demonstrated to Thomas that he's been raised from the dead, and then we read, and truly Jesus did many other signs. What's the sign that, he's, that just happened? The resurrection. 
And Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, see, we, we quote John twenty thirty one. but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These what? Well, in context, it's these signs. These signs, the eight major signs in the Gospel of John, are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. There's nothing wrong with signs. We're given eight signs in the Gospel of John so that it confirms to us who Jesus Christ is. That's the function of signs. But once these signs occurred in the early church, they established the credentials for the church, for Jesus as Messiah, for the apostles in their ministry, and they don't need to be repeated in every generation or every decade or every century. They happened once the church was established. You don't get reborn every decade of your life. You don't get reborn every quarter of your life. You get reborn once. You get born once, and then you grow on the basis of that foundation. So this is the reason you have signs confirmed and confined to a certain part of, of life. So we have these signs and wonders, miracles that confirm the message of the apostles. The result is a division. It's not that everybody believed, but verse 4 reads, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, so there's now a political force that's been brought to bear against the uh, Christians uh, to stone them and to arrest them. Uh, the apostles, that is, Paul and Barnabas, became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. They had accomplished their mission. They stayed sufficiently to teach the uh, new body of believers there. And then they left and fled to the smaller towns of Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were proclaiming the good news there. So we'll stop there this evening, come back to verse 8 next week in Lystra and look at what happens when Paul and Barnabas are misidentified as Greek gods, Barnabas, I mean the Greek gods Zeus and uh, Hermes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be reminded that, that you have confirmed the truth of your word through the signs and wonders, but through the truth of your word. And as as we're reminded from the words of Abraham to the uh, rich man in, uh, in Luke uh, 16, that if we don't believe the words of Moses and the prophets, we won't b- believe because of miracles, that faith comes because we believe the word of God and that we've been persuaded by its truth from what it says and the authenticating mes- ministry accompanying it uh, through God the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would just uh, strengthen our faith that we might trust you more fully, more consistently, day by day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.